The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Mark 1 in your scriptures, uh, Mark chapter number 1. And again, um, if I can just uh, say something that I... I hope will not come across, you know, as a kind of a back, backhanded, you know, kind of, you know, rebuke, but more a, a, of an exhortation. Uh, and uh, this is not a judgment. I'm not going to be looking intently at each person, except to say that I do believe that the church has, uh, in some measure, kind of drifted away from having their Bibles open before them uh, while the sermon is being preached. I understand that for a lot of people, you know, just to lessen the stuff you have to carry, you've got your Bible uh, in your phone, and, and that's fine. I'm not a Pharisee about this. Oh, it's got to be an actual Bible, you know, a book, you know. That's not the point. The point is that we give our attention to God's Word when the Word of God is being read or when the Word of God is being spoken and preached. And it is helpful to see in the text where things are. It is helpful to keep your attention and concentration uh, on the text. And uh, along with that exhortation also has to come a warning because we live in a day of uh, study Bibles. And I remember as a kid, like I had one of the first study Bibles and that was the Schofield Reference Bible. How many of you ever held in your hands that gem, the Schofield Reference Bible? Cliff, you did, right? And there were all these notes that you could read uh, which, if you uh, didn't want to hear what the guy was saying up front, you could just read the notes, you know? And not that you were interested in them. It was just, you know, a, a form of rebellion, I guess, you know? But um, it's important now, if you have your Bibles open and you have a study Bible and there are notes, don't get caught up with the notes. Get caught up in what I, as the one communicating God's Word, is speaking. And then, you know, after the sermon, you get a copy of the sermon and review it or whatever and look at your study notes. And if you have questions, whatever it might be, please ask. That would be completely appropriate. You know, why does this guy say this and this guy, and you said this, you know? That's an important part of learning. But the main point I'm trying to make is, I think there needs to be a recovery of um, the word of God in the church held by God's people as the word of God is spoken. So with that in mind, I want to read just a portion of what we'll be covering from Mark 1 today, and it has to do with the baptism of our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. And uh, it's in Mark chapter number 1, and uh, it's verse number 14, uh, down through verse number 22. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. 
And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. May the Lord now direct our hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Jesus Christ. So with your Bibles open to the Gospel of Mark, we're going to take up this Gospel for the next six months. Just 16 chapters. We're not going to be doing a verse by verse by verse, but we are going to be digging into larger themes and an understanding of what Mark is trying to tell us and what the Spirit then would teach us through Mark's Gospel. Um, there are two illustration, uh, illustrations I'd like you to keep in mind. I kind of used one in the bulletin, a little blurb I wrote about Mark on the back of the bulletin. It's about a dark room that has one window and a curtain, and the only way to get light into the dark room is what? You've got to do what? You've got to open the curtain. And what I suggest to you is that Mark, the Gospel of Mark, serves like the string that you pull to open the curtain. And when you do, what's going to shine in is God's kingdom and God's light uh, of his kingdom. And very often when we, when we read the Bible, we're reading it as if we're reading kind of interesting stories or exciting stories or not too exciting stories. But we tend to forget that when we open our Bibles and we read it, and this is especially true uh, in this series of Mark, that what we're reading is how the kingdom of God is present among us today. And Mark is going to show us these things. The gospel of Mark works like the string that you pull to raise the curtain. And when the curtain is raised, the light pours in. And what I hope we will see today and months ahead is the kingdom of God at work among us as a church. And even among us here in our own region. But the second illustration I'd like you to keep in mind is uh, about language, about language. If anyone has ever tried to learn another language, uh, you know that there is a difference between being able to say a few words and then actually thinking like someone who is a native of that country. Um, a few years back, Ron and I were visiting our son Jesse, who was stationed in England at the time, and as uh, I'm sure we all know, they drive on a different side of the road than here in the States. This means that when you cross the street, you have to look in an entirely different direction, the opposite direction, right, of where you would look if you were here in the United States. Now, uh, I was almost taken out by a large transit bus. Even though I'm an affluent English speaker... I was not fluent in the customs and the culture of British life. And if I remember correctly, not to over-dramatize it, but just as I'm ready to step, I get pulled back. Because uh, you're supposed to look right, and then, right, as you cross the street, look left. And we're just trained to do what? Oh, nothing's coming. Here I go, whoa! <laughs> Zoom! You know, there the, the bus went by. In other words... I was not immersed. Immersion is a step that serious language learners have to take to move past a surface understanding of the meaning of words and get to the heart then of the customs and culture of a country. 
Immersion is most effective when uh, people are together in loving relationships. This is why a student, you know, will often leave uh, and go do a six-month, you know, study, saying if they're learning Spanish, they'll go to Spain for six months and live, to be immersed in the language, but more than the language. They need to learn the customs and the cultures, and they need to know the nuances, and that all is done best or most effectively in the context of loving relationships. Now, when we put these two illustrations together, we arrive at our task for the coming months. It will be, become obvious that as Mark pulls back the curtain and light begins to pour in, and we see what the kingdom of God is really like, what we then learn from Jesus is that he intends for us to learn not only the language of the kingdom, but the customs and the culture. He intends for us to learn what does it mean for us to live as Christians in the kingdom of God. And to do that, we must live in close, loving relationships, not only with Jesus among us, but one uh, with another. And so I pray that as the light of God's word pours in, we as a church who perhaps have become satisfied with knowing a few words and phrases about our faith might begin to apply ourselves at a much deeper level in actual Christian relationships so that we once again become immersed in God's kingdom. And as we become immersed in God's kingdom through loving relationships one with another, we will not only see kingdom work more clearly, but we will be encouraged to do that work together, just as the disciples that we read about in the reading started to do that work together. So those two illustrations of light and dark, along with a life immersed in a new language, come together gloriously in the baptism of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 9 through 11. This is Mark's very brief account of the baptism. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Here we have light and darkness and immersion coming together in the baptism of Christ. Look again carefully at the wording. He comes up out of the water, and as he comes up, the, the window of heaven is torn open, right? That's that illustration of a curtain being open. And as the window of heaven is torn open, the kingdom of God, as it were, begins to pour down in the person of the Holy Spirit who descends upon him uh, like a dove. And then the kingdom of God uh, interacts because God himself, God the Father, speaks to his Son and what does he speak? He speaks words of assurance, words of love. He says, you are my son in whom I much love son, and with you I am well pleased. Now, when Jesus experiences this, he sees the loving rule and reign of God descending on him 
through the agency of the Holy Spirit. And he hears the Father's reassuring words. My much-loved Son, I am well pleased with you. What we're seeing here is that we then, as a family, are invited to be immersed into this same kind of experience that Jesus himself was immersed into. Not just the waters of baptism, but the actual immersion of his life into the kingdom of God and into the work of God's kingdom through the power of the Holy Spirit who descends upon him. And the voice of God that speaks to him. This is what you and I are invited into. We are invited into a kind of loving relationship that transforms us through the power of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We are transformed by the good news of God's love so that we then begin to see with increasing clarity how the kingdom of God is at work all around us at this present moment and that we gain the encouragement of hope that what lies ahead of us in the future when God's new creation finally comes in all of its completeness, that we have peace, and we have joy, and that we have love, and that we will to be together in God's new creation. You know, one of the key words in the early part of Mark, and it kind of carries through throughout his gospel, is the word immediately. Immediately. I, I have loved Mark for many years, and I've read Mark for many years, and it has bothered me. It has bothered me. That word has bothered me. Because so very often, I don't see immediately, right? I pray, I work, I pray, I work, and nothing's happening. Well, why can't it be immediate, right? Why can't it be immediate? And it has troubled me, and I reflected on this uh, over this past year, and I've spent a lot of time in Mark uh, in, in 2021, and what I came to realize is that I needed to begin to think about that word differently. That word is used eight times in the first chapter alone, and I believe that what Mark is showing to his readers is that when Jesus stepped onto the public scene, there was an immediate shift in power and authority. In other words, I was taking the wrong perspective. I was thinking that, you know, I asked for something, God snapped his finger, be done. But what Mark is showing us is that when Jesus steps on the scene, there was an immediate effect because his life now was entering the public view. You might recall in our sermons um, around the birth of Christ in an advent, we said that when, at the very conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary, evil was moved off the mark. But now it's been 30 years later. And at this 30th year, Jesus steps on the scene and immediately things start to happen because the Son of God is now exercising the authority of the kingdom in public view. I think this is seen in chapter number one in three summary examples. Now, there's a lot of action in the first chapter of Mark, a lot of really exciting things. You should read them, go like, oh, wow, that's pretty cool, you know? Uh, but uh, there are three summary statements that I think will help 
kind of put it together for us, and uh, you can, you know, read the details of each uh, occasion on your own. But what, again, I think Mark is showing us is that in the immediate work of Christ, when the loving rule and reign of God becomes visible on earth in the public ministry of Jesus, things happen. And the first one I would suggest in verse number 22 is for us to see that the rule and reign of God, this is authoritative. This is authoritative. We'll put it up on, oh, it's already up there. Very good, it's already up there. Listen again to what's said in the synagogue. These are churchgoers who have listened to teachers their entire life, and they listen to Jesus' teaching. They're astonished. What are they astonished at? That he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. This is reinforced again in verse number 27. They're all amazed so that they question among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with what? Authority. As he commands the unclean spirits and they obey him. When we pull back the curtain and we look at the kingdom of God pouring down upon us, and we live in these immersed relationships through the power of the Holy Spirit, what we have to come to admit and what we have to come to believe together as a people is that the very word of God among us is authoritative. It's authoritative. That the work of the kingdom makes things happen, not through our clever you know, ability, not through our wisdom, not through our power, uh, not through our ability to manipulate anyone or anything. But it is through the very power of God as his word is spoken and energized by the spirit of God. But there's a second way, and kind of again in a summary, that this is expressed. Look at verse number 32. And the second way this is expressed is that the rule and reign of God reversed the curse that God announced when sin came into the world. So as the curtain is pulled back, what we're going to see is what life is going to be like one day in the kingdom, but we're also going to see what life is like when God's kingdom comes to earth and interacts with people in deep need and in deep crisis. What does verse number 32 say? That evening, um, uh, they bring to him, to Jesus, all who were sick or oppressed by demons. The whole city is gathered together at the door. And what is Jesus doing? He is healing many who were sick with various diseases. What is he doing? He's casting out the demons. And he, would not, he has authority over the demons so much so that he wouldn't permit them to speak. They knew who he was. The rule and reign of God reversed the curse that came due to sin. So, so when, you, when you say, what effect did the coming of Jesus have into the world, not only is it an effect of authority that makes things happen, but then people's lives are changed. Healings uh, take place. Uh, people whose lives are broken by demonic uh, oppression are released from those demons. Their lives are put back together. But we got to think about a third example, kind of a third summary statement. Because you see, in Mark 1, and you'll see this throughout the Gospel of Mark, that the forces of evil, 
which are fully energized in Satan and his demons, then fight tooth and nail against the loving rule and reign of God on earth. And I would suggest to you that the force of this truth is found in the word again immediately in verse number 12. That the Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. Now, if you put 9 and you run it all the way down to verse number 13, you have this contrasting tension, right? What do you have? You have um, the beauty and the blessedness of the baptism of Jesus contrasted with the Spirit driving Jesus into the wilderness, and there he is tempted by Satan. And this is a key to understanding our discipleship. And why our discipleship is best lived in community, a community of love. (laughs) Because we all know that there are going to be those moments high up on the mountain. The day is bright and beautiful and the baptisms and people giving testimony and the room is full and we're singing and it's overflowing with joy. And then the Spirit says, hey, you're going to have to spend some time in the wilderness. Ouch. Ouch. But Jesus is not alone in the wilderness. The angels are ministering to him. Yes, Satan is there. Yes, the wild beasts are there. And yes, that's the human experience. But if we're going to understand how the kingdom works and that it has immediate effect into our lives, let let us, you know, like, clap our hands and sing for joy and celebrate when the room is full and everything is bright and beautiful, but then when we're in the wilderness, let's make sure we're banding together and like angels ministering to one another because we're immersed in relationships of love as a community. You know, if you put these three scenes together, you have to answer a very difficult question. Question came to me this week. I did two funerals. Weeping, sobbing people. Hospitals are full. COVID still affects, along with multitudes of other issues. And the question underlying all of this is asked like this. If God's kingdom is authoritative, why doesn't God simply remove the curse with immediate effect? Why did Jesus have to go into the wilderness? Why were people left unhealed? Why did people die? And this becomes a real problem. It has turned many a person away from God and God's love because they find it hard to believe that a God who claims to be loving would ever allow bad things to happen to what what they consider good people. Good people. I would suggest that this issue has also caused Christians to have many sleepless nights. Over the past couple of months, I've left this building and I've walked across the yard to that house that I've lived in for 32 years And more and more as I walk across that yard, I am tempted to say to myself, well, not much has changed in 32 years. So what are we to say to this objection? 
Well, I think one answer is found within the scenes we've looked at in chapter number one. Mark is showing us that the kingdom has come, but has not yet come in all of its completeness. People are healed. Demons are cast out. Disciples are called. The gospel begins to go out. The first readers of Mark's gospel had to live with this tension just as we have to live with this tension. But as we are immersed in Trinitarian love and as we immerse ourselves in love one for another, we can find hope even though it appears more often than not that it's just a desolate time. People aren't coming to church. Sickness is all around us. Seems like our nation is falling apart, that this world is falling apart. And it reminds us, though, that when Jesus came, the kingdom came with him, and it had immediate effect, but it did not come to all its fullness and to all of its completion. My encouragement to us is that by God's grace, let us look with clear eyes and let us have strong hearts So that even when the trials appear to be so unbearable, and they do seem at times to be unbearable, we can say with the psalmist, that beautiful psalm, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. There's a second answer I think we can give to this objection. That if God really loves us, why does he let all this bad stuff happen? The answer, the second answer, is also presented in Mark's gospel. You see, the teaching and the good works that Jesus performed were important, not only because they showed the power of God's kingdom love for hurting people, but they did something else. They authenticated the greater work that Jesus came to accomplish. The greater work. Now now next week, In chapter number 2, we're going to get a hint of this. We're going to get a hint of it. But for now, I would like you to go to chapter 10 of Mark. Chapter 10 of Mark. And I want you to see how Jesus identifies himself and his work with a very important phrase. In verse number 45 of Mark 10, Jesus says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve And to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life as a ransom for many. You see, for the curse to be fully lifted, something more would have to be done uh, than just healing, as important as healing is. A ransom would have to be paid that would satisfy the debt of humanity the debt of sin that humanity has incurred against God. Now we're all familiar with the concept of debt. And I've used this illustration over the years because it humors me. If I go down uh, to Wendy at the bank to pay my debt, I don't show up with a chicken. Say, Wendy, here's my monthly you know, payment for my debt. And Wendy goes, what am I going to do with a chicken? We go, I don't know, but that's what I'm giving you. She goes, no, that's not how it works. You got to give me American money, U.S. dollars. That's how the debt gets paid. We have people all over the world today who think that they can show up with a chicken 
to holy God and say, well, here's what I'm paying my debt of sin with. And Jesus says, no. That's not how it works. The payment that needs to be given to satisfy the debt is one of perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. For only perfect obedience would satisfy the debt. Jesus makes it clear in the statement that he is the one who is going to provide the ransom that is the payment of perfect obedience and that the payment would be his very life. His very life. This means that Jesus, the Son in whom the Father is well pleased, would not only have to stoop into the misery of our lives and into the particular sins of our lives, but in doing so, he would have to give his life, his very life, for the healing to come. The healing that not only would forgive us of our sins, but would ultimately bring heaven and earth together and the kingdom of God then come in all of its fullness. This is the tension that Mark sets up in his gospel. And as you read Mark's gospel, and I would encourage you to read it often over the next six months, what we need to see is that um, in, in, uh, in this tension that begins with the statement that Jesus makes, or excuse me, that the Father speaks from heaven about Jesus back in chapter number one, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased, Mark 1, 11, that that statement, that statement carries with it a tension that, that the son the father was pleased with at that moment is the son that the father had been pleased with for all eternity. And he was the son that he was pleased with throughout his earthly ministry. And notice that he's not just pleased with him. He's well pleased with him. You know, that's the difference between macaroni and cheese out of a craft box, which is perfectly fine, and homemade mac and cheese that Bonnie Armstrong makes. That's well-pleasing. You know, that's the difference between a frozen chocolate pie you get at the grocery and somebody who has taken the time to make the dough and, and you know, make the chocolate work and the cream on top that's fresh, and the little chocolate sprinkles that are on top of it that Teresa can make. You know? That's well-pleasing. And the father didn't look at his son and say, oh yeah, you're a pretty good guy. This tension runs throughout the entire Gospel of Mark. Because if you read the next 13 chapters of the book, you'll see that the son remains well-pleasing to the father But when you get to chapter number 15, the scene changes as we read words that should cause us to shudder. For in chapter number 15, the day is not bright and beautiful like it was at the baptism of Jesus. Instead, it is filled with darkness. The blessed body of Jesus is now not wet with the waters of his baptism. His body is drenched with his own blood, blood that flows as he hangs naked from a Roman cross. Instead of the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending and the Father speaking words of love, the heavens now in chapter number 15 are shut. And the Father has turned his face away from his much-loved Son. 
What we see in chapter number 15 at the death of Jesus is the exact opposite of what we saw in the birth of Jesus. When the night sky dark is made bright by the angels of heaven. For at the cross of Jesus, it's noon. It is the time when the light of the sky should be shining at its fullest, but it's not. The sky is completely dark. The whole land is in darkness. And in chapter number 15, instead of a baby being held in his mother's arms, Mother Mary is weeping as she looks at the shame of the nakedness of her adult son and hears him cry out to his heavenly father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is at that moment the reader should stop and ask, What happened? What happened? What exactly did Jesus do that would cause the father to turn from his son? Did Jesus refuse to heal somebody in need? Did Jesus lust over some woman? Was Jesus prideful? Did Jesus just accidentally blaspheme? Did Jesus somehow bully somebody? Wasn't kind to somebody? What happened in chapter 15 that would cause hell to make a personal visit to Jesus on earth? Well, we must be clear and say that Jesus did no wrong. That he always and only gave perfect obedience to the Father. But if he is going to be the ransom price for sinners, he would have to go the full distance in obedience. He would have to become sin for sinners. The perfect would have to be declared imperfect. The righteous would have to be declared unrighteous. And this is what we look at in chapter number 15 when we look at Jesus on the cross. And if you ever struggle with why does God allow bad things happen to people, let that struggle find its resolution in the fact that God himself sent his much-loved son to the cross. Struggle on a much deeper level as to why would God do that For you, for me, when my track record is just marked by sin and self. Why would a loving father send his son to his death for us? You know, if at this moment we're willing to let light pour into the darkness of our hearts, what we'll see In these things is the language of the kingdom, is first and foremost love. It is the language of love. The love of God for his son, the love of God for sinners, the opportunity for sinners to be ransomed so that they too can love God and love one another. And as we learn that new language, what we will see is that in order for it to be lived, it has to be lived in the context of relationships that are rooted and governed by love. And so my encouragement to us today is to lean into God's grace and let us endeavor to do more than just learn a few Christian words. <laughs> but we really begin to learn what is life like in the kingdom of God? What are its customs? 
What are the nuances? What are the meanings of its culture? And what we will see that as we live that in relationships, that we will be even more deeply rooted and grounded in love as we encourage one another, loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving each other. So we've pulled back the curtain this morning in our first sermon from Mark. What have we seen? Well, hopefully we've seen more clearly that through Jesus Christ, a new world has come upon us. And even though we die, the promise of resurrection remains. And although not everyone is healed, some are healed. And even in our sickness and even in the peril of life that God is with us and God is helping us, that this present age of death is indeed being undone, And what we have the promise of one day is entering into the fullness of God's new world. But as that light has begun to shine, have we not seen something else? And that is the willingness of Jesus to enter into the darkest day of humanity so that he himself would pay the ransom price for our sins. And then because of that day and the glorious resurrection that follows three days later, we too can enter by faith into the blessedness of God's kingdom. Have you seen that this morning? And if you have seen it, are you living in it by faith? Are your sins forgiven? Not just the sins you commit every day, yes, but have you in a very personal and real way entered into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ? Are you his disciple? Are you part of his church? You see, what is our response to be to these things, these glorious, beautiful things that we are seeing? Well, let me again return to my opening illustration about the need to become immersed in a new language and a new custom and a new way of life. To reduce the odds of my being run over by a large bus in England, I would have to make more than just an occasional visit to England. I would actually have to leave the old country behind. I would have to leave my old location, my old way of life. I would have to actually begin a new life. I would have to be immersed in British customs and culture. And once I did, over a period of time, I'd no longer have to look at the pavement that says, look right. And then as you get to the middle street, it says, look left. They have that on the pavement as you cross streets in Britain. Because so many tourists, what? Get taken out by buses looking the wrong way. You see, this is what Jesus calls us to in our own baptism. This is what Jesus calls us to in our own baptism. And that through his message that he gives to us to repent and believe the gospel. There is a line that I have loved reading over this past week by the poet Malcolm Guite who wrote so beautifully in his sonnet about the baptism of Jesus that he calls us to to step into that river to die and rise and live and love forever. We have to admit there are times when we don't want to step into that river. 
There are times when I'm walking back across that grass to my house and I say, I don't know if I can do it anymore. I don't know. I don't know. And God reminds me that although we live in a fractured world, although we live in a world crippled by anger and anxiety, and although we live in a world that is lost and loveless, the church doesn't have to be that way. The church can be empowered to take up her calling to live in this world and for this world. But in order for us to do that, we have to step into that river. We too have to repent and believe the gospel each and every day for our lives if we're going to live more fully in God's kingdom. This is always the call to discipleship. I am not my own. I am bought with a price. So I now live to glorify God who gave himself up for me. I'm going to quote a favorite theologian of mine, Now with the Lord. I was listening to a sermon this past week, and he ended his sermon this way, and it just encouraged my heart. So I pray with all my heart that God will awaken each one of us today to the sweetness, the loveliness, the glory of the gospel declared by Christ. And here's why. Because the future is Jesus Christ. The future is Jesus Christ. All right, we're going to stop. God willing, next week, the room will be full. There won't be icy sidewalks and the threat of snow and whatever else we're going to get today. And that we'll be together and encouraging one another in the word of God. I would again say read Mark through as much as you can, as often as you can. Let it enrich your life. Jim Northrup and Charlotte. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.